Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. That's the great thing about these seventh games is that one guy can make a huge difference. Someone's going to be a hero tonight. And, uh, just the, the, the great thing for the fans and, and your coaches and the guys, you don't know who it's going to be. There's going to be a hero tonight. There's no question. Country, hello. This is PT Isles, the Advance Like It's 1993 edition. I'm Isles Box Joe Bono. A reminder you can listen to this show and all Lighthouse Hockey podcasts on iTunes. Please rate and review or find us on Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or over at lighthousehockey.com. Lighthouse Hockey, your SB Nation home for your New York Islanders coverage. Coming up, I'll be joined by a special guest, former Islanders VP of Communications, and more recently, you know him from his blogs over at Islanders Point Blank, that's Chris Botta, and we'll get his perspective on what happened on Saturday night, the New York Islanders, a 4 nothing shutout of the Philadelphia Flyers to advance to their first Eastern Conference Final, and first Conference Final since 1993. I say that because the last time they did this, it was the Wales Conference, that's how long ago it is. And as I tweeted out, 
as the final seconds were ticking off the clock, if you were born after May 14th, 1993, when David Volick scored that overtime goal, beating Tom Barrasso and eliminating the two-time defending champion Pittsburgh Penguins, they just did something for the first time in your life. And to think about where this franchise was two years ago, the way so many of us felt on July 1st, 2018, when John Tavares left, and yes, we had Lou Lamarillo, and yes, we had Barry Trotz, but we all felt like the franchise still had taken a bit of a step back and not a step sideways that day. What we didn't know is that they had taken one major leap forward, and what Barry Trotz did last season, 103 points, sweeping the Pittsburgh Penguins in the first round. Yeah, I know they got swept by the Carolina Hurricanes, and that was disappointing. But then what he has done again this season. And listen, I don't think the Islanders go on this run if we would have just had a standard season. We talked about it now for several weeks, how the Islanders benefited greatly from the pause and this bubble format in so many ways. Of course, getting healthy with Casey Zizekas being able to come back, Adam Pellick being able to come back, J.G. Paggio and Andy Green being able to kind of get a feel for the team and the organization after they were just brought in at the trade deadline. And they were in a bit of a funk, having not won in seven games when the NHL season was suspended. With that said, for two months, the Islanders were the best team in the NHL. They had the 17-game unbeaten streak. We were showing how on ESPN and NHL.com, they were the top team in the power rankings. And then they went into a lull. They lost their way, and they needed to regroup and find it again. And in the most unlikely of circumstances, a four-month pause, and then a bubble scenario up in Toronto, the Islanders found their way found their way in a big, big way. You know, you started to feel it a little bit, even in that Panther series, the way they were talking about it, the fact that J.G. Pajot was making such an instant contribution and being that big-time player that they wanted him to be. You know, when you saw kind of the camaraderie happening, when it, when the ping-pong tournaments and the funny videos, and you just felt like, man, this is a real brotherhood amongst this team. And while some teams maybe not be embracing this setup for all the challenges that it that it presents, not being around your family and obviously being restricted to certain areas and, and being able to really just have to focus on hockey and your teammates, the Islanders were thriving in that situation. They got a favorable matchup, I think, with the Florida Panthers. They got their mojo going, and then they handled the Washington Capitals up three on that series, hit a little snag, no problem, come right back, shut them out, close the door on them, and then you had with the Philadelphia Flyers, who just ran through the other teams in the round-robin tournament. The Flyers were um, one of the hottest teams in the NHL prior to the season being suspended, and then were the best team in the round-robin format. With that said, some people were picking the Islanders to win that series. And I know the series won seven, but the Islanders were the better team for the vast, vast, vast majority of that series. Flyers had a really good start to game two. Islanders dominated that game after that. Grice came in. They lose in overtime. Islanders were uh, really good in game six, deserved to win. Varlamov did not have his best game. They lose again. Islanders did not lose in regulation to the Philadelphia Flyers in this series, and they dominated game seven. We were all expecting to be a nervous wreck. We watched the games the earlier day, the Dallas game, 
with that furious comeback and the overtime winner, the 0-0 game going into the third period between Vegas and Vancouver, and we were expecting to be on the edge of our seat, worried about being the only team to be up 3-1 this year and blow the series. And the exact opposite happened. Uh, As I tweeted out, my fingernails actually grew during that game because I wasn't nervous. They were a little choppy, a little shaky in the first five minutes or so. Uh, Not that the Flyers had any great chances, but from the moment Scott Mayfield scored that first goal, the Islanders were not just the better team, they were a dominant team against the Philadelphia Flyers. And you can hear it in the way the announcers were talking about the Islanders. The Flyers could get nothing going. They couldn't get past the red line. The entire game was being spent in that Flyers zone. Uh, ultimately, they get the Andy Green goal, 2-0, and you were just waiting for that third. If they can get that third one, you're going to feel real, real comfortable. Josh Bailey makes the great pass to Brock Nelson, make it 3-0. Islanders give them nothing at the start of the third period. Ultimately, Anthony Beauvillier scores the empty net goal and a shutout victory for Thomas Grice, who, you know what? A lot of the fans, right after the game, they had a few polls as to who the Islanders should start. And I didn't know whether or not it was just based on kind of instant emotional reaction uh, that the Islanders had just lost. But about 2-1, to one, people wanted Varlamov to, to take a rest and Grice to be in net for Game 7. And then Neil Best comes out on Newsday and puts Grice on the back page about it should be Grice in net. And I kind of felt that way too. And Barry Trotz agreed. And Thomas Grice shuts out. I know he wasn't given a ton of work and the team played outstanding defensive hockey in front of him. But Thomas Grice in net for a shutout victory. And just to put Thomas Grice's career now in perspective, when the Islanders and Garth Snow signed him, we knew very little about him. Had a career where he spent some time in Pittsburgh and San Jose. Looked okay enough. Yarrow was the clear number one. You need to have a backup. Let's see how Thomas Grice does. Halak gets injured in that 2015-16 season, and it's Thomas Grice who's in net and plays great against the Florida Panthers. He was in net when the Islanders broke the streak of 23 consecutive years without advancing in the postseason. And Thomas Grice, again, is now in net when the Islanders advance to the first conference final since 1993. And if you think about all the other stuff that's going on, the fact that Ilya Sorokin, the white whale, is finally coming over, and that Thomas Grice is a free agent whenever the season ends. This could be the last times we get to see Thomas Grice in net. But boy, in, in four seasons, there are not many people that, given the opportunities he's had, has left a more lasting and meaningful, impactful presence for a franchise than Thomas Grice, having been the goaltender to lead them in the playoffs in 2016, break that long drought, and then finally get them to the conference finals with a Game 7 shutout against the Philadelphia Flyers. And where do we go from here? Um, The Islanders have played Tampa really well uh, in recent years, especially this year. They're a high-powered octane offense. They got a great Netmeyer and Vasilevsky. And a lot of people are going to pick Tampa, but I think you're going to get a handful of people that kind of see the way the Islanders have handled the last two teams and the fact that they have all four lines playing as well as they are. They have their system, people buying in, everyone kind of pulling in the same direction the way they are. And the amount of offense that they're generating on the rush, what that top line is doing, even without Jordan Eberle being able to convert on so, so many chances, I think you're going to see a handful of 
of NHL experts uh, give the Islanders actually the nod here in this upcoming series that turnaround time is quick. They have to get on a flight, go to Edmonton, and play a game Monday night, game one. So obviously Tampa Bay is going to be rested. Islanders will not be, but they're going to be riding high, full of confidence going into game one. And on the other side, obviously the Western Conference, you have the Vegas Golden Knights and Robin Leonard and going against the Dallas Stars. And uh, there's a potential storyline there, um, but we are still uh, four wins away before that potentially becomes a reality. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that if and when it comes. And I hope we do get the opportunity to talk about that. But um, if you're, you know, if you're someone that's in my age bracket between 30 and 40 years old, I was 11 years old in the spring of 1993. I've written about this before. I've talked about it before. That was the first year I started watching hockey. I had an older cousin who I looked up to and talked sports with all the time. I really didn't have a hockey allegiance. It wasn't really what my dad was super into. We were much more of a baseball, football family. And he started taking me to some regular season games. And then we went to the Coliseum for playoff games um, against the Washington Capitals. And I saw Ray Ferraro's double overtime goal. And um, obviously watched the next series. I remember running home from a baseball game I had to play and watching them win game one. And then, of course, I remember them being, you know, such massive underdogs, winning game six at the Coliseum, Kasparitis and Mario Lemieux and um, Tom Fitzgerald with shorthanded goals and then winning game seven after blowing the lead and and still winning in overtime on David Volk's goal on the pass for Ray Ferraro. And I was going to be a fan for life at that point. And what I did not know was how difficult it was going to be from that point till now to be an Islanders fan. The next year, the New York Rangers win the Stanley cup. That's in your face. And then the Islanders go through a period of no playoffs for seven years. You have Charles Wong come over and the Islanders get back to respectability with Peter LaViolette and Sterling and Ted Nolan. You had brief playoff appearances, but lots of one and dones with teams that were not expected to do much. And then you get Tavares, and you have your face of your franchise, and you have moments of success. You you feel like you've arrived, and then you take two massive steps backs, and you feel like this is going to be more of the same with the arena nonsense and playing in Brooklyn and not knowing what the future of the organization is going to be. And then one full swoop, Scott Malkin and John Ledecky decided, and they probably had long decided, but they acted that, the New York Islanders are going to be a top flight organization in the NHL. And they brought in Lou Lamarillo. They were gifted Barry Trotz by the Washington Capitals for not willing to pay this man what he was worth after a Stanley Cup championship. And despite their best player taking less money to go elsewhere and doing it in a way that enraged the fan base, they became better that day. They became a team that day. They became an organization that day. And all these players that have been much maligned by the Islander fan base, the Josh Baileys, the Brock Nelsons, the Cal Clutterbucks, all these guys that Garth Snow signed to these long-term contracts and even Lou Lamarillo then extending and, and, and last year in terms of what Brock coming back and Everly coming back and Nelson to a long-term deal, all these players said, I can get better. And they have. And they all bought into the same system. There were no superstars on this team. I know Matt Barzell's on the cusp of becoming one. But they changed that day. And now the Honors are in the Eastern Conference Finals. 
They have a new arena being built. They have a Hall of Fame coach, a Hall of Fame general manager, and you should be damn proud to be an Islander fan. Obviously, we all wish that situations were different in the world right now and that um, there'd be a lot going on in the parking lot and at the old barn, and it would be special. But this one is special in its own way. And... um, you know this 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 playoff run is going to be remembered for a long, long time, and I know there's a, probably a lot of young Islander fans that uh, these are their heroes right now, and they're watching, and they're always going to remember these names the same way I always remember Derek King, Steve Thomas, and Ben Wahoog, Pierre Turgeon, Malakoff, and Tom Curvers, Huey Croup, and recited those for years and years and years. They're always going to remember this team. Let's just hope they're able to win a few more. And keep this going. And um, who knows where it could end. When we get back, I'll be joined by Chris Botter, former VP of Communications for the New York Islanders and Islanders Point Blank. You're listening to PT Isles, part of the Lighthouse Hockey Podcast Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We're back. Joe Bono, PT Isles, Lighthouse Hockey Podcast Network, joined now by former Islanders VP of Communications and most recently the writer at Islanders Point Blank. That's Chris Botta. Chris, how are you on this joyous day? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. Don't remember exactly how I felt the day after uh, May 14th, 1993, but I'm, I'm sure I was walking into school, uh, you know, into a fourth, fifth grade with uh, quite the swagger. Um, I wanted to have you on to kind of gain your perspective of what we watched last night and what it really means for the franchise. And, um, you know, where were you in your life and your career in, in 93? Uh, you know, let's start off there about that memorable run. Well, sure. I was with the team as uh, in some sort of hybrid publication slash public relations role and uh, was traveling with the team all the time. And, As a few people might have seen on Twitter, what was remarkable about that was that I got engaged in 92 and we were going to pick a date. And, you know, I'm sorry to be like so crass about this, but like, you know, the Islanders didn't win much anymore. Right. (laughs) I started working for them in late 87 or so. Um, And so, you know, May seemed like a safe time. Uh, long story short, I got married on May 1, 1993, and listen, I, I, I missed maybe two days of work, and I didn't miss any of the games, and uh, the only thing that I'll ever feel somewhat bad about is that my wife, who's from West Virginia and didn't really grow up on hockey, we got married in West Virginia. Two weeks later, we also had a party in Port Washington at the what was known as the George Washington Manor uh, in Roslyn, I should say. And like it's all anybody wanted to talk about, you know, was the Islanders winning? <laughs> they won. They can really they no can they beat Montreal? So, um, you know, that is my memory of that. But also, I have just fond memories of that team specifically. Like if you look at them, like so many of them, Ray being the obvious example, Glenn Healy, like they've gone on to be broadcast 
boxers or to work in the players association or to work in the business, Tommy Curvers and, and many others, Tommy Fitzgerald, now the general manager of the devils. And that, that is, you know, I understand we're always going to like the teams that won the most, but that really was a unique collection of people coached by Al Arbor, which even like to this moment, as I'm a, as I'm an older gentleman, like I pinched myself that like I got to work. I understand I wasn't part of the dynasty, but I got to work with Al Arbor and, and Bill Torrey, uh, you know, prior to that season and all the success that came with it and learning from them. So it, it's, it brings back a, a lot of great memories to say the least. And I was thinking about this yesterday is that, you know, when I was a young kid watching the 93 team, you know, I can recite those names forever. That team will last with me forever. And it's what made me a hardcore Islander fan. And there's a whole group of young fans right now watching these players that in some ways maybe even grew up with these players, given how long they've been with the team, a number of them, whether it be Matt Marin and Tzizekas and Bailey and Nelson and so on, that, you know, this is how you maintain and build a fan base. This is how you get season ticket holders. And this is how you really start to thrive as an organization. It's also a group that you feel really good about liking, right? I, I get it. Most of the guys in the NHL are good people or whatever. But there is, you know, when you think about the, the line with, with Martin and Zekas, who like, you know, these aren't kids anymore, right? And, and Clutterbuck and a and, and couple of them being homegrown and Matt Martin coming back. I mean, they've been around long enough that even though I haven't been with the team for over a decade, you know, they were – parts of drafts and things like that, that either I was there or uh, then went on to cover. And, and these are Josh Bailey, obviously being another great example. And, and these are really, really, really good people. Like these are, these are people who have come through, they've persevered, they saw Tavares leave, they saw, you know, arena projects not work. They saw uh, Charles Wong and Charles's uh, uh, sad passing and the new ownership group and just everything that's gone on. And then they've come out the other side of it. So, you know, let's face it, we always like our teams. We look at it, you know, if you're a Yankee fan, you think of the guys who are the homegrown guys a little more. So this is an immensely likable group. Uh, and the other part of this show is that what, what makes the reason why I think a lot of us are smiling and, and maybe uh, the older gang is smiling, too, is the hardest thing to do in sports is win a championship. There's no right in team sports. There's no argument about that. But the second hardest, and it's a close second, is to to get the stink off, is to 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 go from being not good, bad or mediocre at best for a long time to being really good and, and being in the mix for a championship. And, you know, you could, you know, whether it's the Pittsburgh Pirates, the LA Clippers of, of old your, the Islanders at, at times for certainly long stretches, it is not easy to do when you're losing regardless of whether you're picking first all the time or in the top five or not. We've shown that we've proven that other teams have too. It's just hard to change that culture to use that word and to go again, just from being eh or worse to being really, really good. And that's what last night means, right? There's more to come. I believe this team is, is, has, a, has a, I know they, on paper, they have a one in four chance, no matter what, but they, they deserve to be there and they deserve to be equal along those other three teams. There's no one team that's better than the other. Same was the case in 93. Patrick Waugh had something to say about that. Um, but th there's, th there's a reason why this feels good. And it's not just that they advanced and they, 
put this 27-year thing uh, behind them, but that there's a core here, uh, there's leadership, there's great coaching that you never feel like, you know, you have to really argue or stretch to make some point about why a decision was made. You feel comfortable about it. So I can understand, especially for those uh, young fans, what these players and this team mean to them. But there's also, I believe there's more to come. And regardless of how this works out, this will be a memorable time. Chris Botta at Chris Botta NHL on Twitter is our guest. I went back uh, to look at what you tweeted out on July 1st, 2018, in the moments after John Tavares made his announcement that he would be leaving the Islanders to sign with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And you tweeted out, Lou's going to need 12 years to fix the Isles mess now that snow left mm-hmm. behind. Just kidding. Just kidding. He'll do it quickly. And mm-hmm. I think maybe people felt that the culture would change. I don't know whether or not we ever imagined the success, the success level this quickly. It changed with trots, you know, like uh, I, I know I, I see this a lot. Brian Compton is the first to remind us that the players play the game and that is true. And, and by no means will I ever take anything away from any of these players. Um, but, you know, <laughs> let, we cannot forget where this, team was in league defense that year and where they were a year later under trots and this coaching staff that is one of the most remarkable things in sports team history because they didn't completely tear it up there was a sense that these are players who can play they need structure they need leadership they need a system they need to be coached and I don't know what was going on really, right? I mean, all I remember of the Doug Wade era was them losing and, and Doug almost seeming like he was programmed to say, I thought we deserved a better fate. It was just a really weird time, right? So then Lou Lamorello takes over, which is just, you know, a, a, a gift from heaven. And, and that's where we really need to think, uh, thank the Maple Leafs. And then Barry Trotz becomes available. And Lou Lamorello and this ownership got Barry Trotz. Garth wouldn't have. The previous ownership wouldn't have. That these are all just like clear facts. Garth did a lot to do with the, the players who are on this roster, and he deserves credit for that. And so does his staff. But you know, there there was Tavares leaving. No, did we think we'd be here? But there was still a sense that well, maybe they could make something happen. The fact that they've done it with some changes to the lineup, but not a lot is truly remarkable. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. There isn't really any more that can be said about Lamorella and Trotz. And, I, again, I repeat, Trotz is assistant coaches as well because in this blog community that we've been part of for 15 or more years, remember the Kelly Miller days? Let's blame Kelly Miller for the power <laughs> player, the penalty guy. Let's blame this guy, who we, uh, Gomez. Let's say Scotty Gomez, who seems to maybe be involved in this thing. Like, you know, the, these assistant coaches, They and by the way, I couldn't name them all for you right now, right? But they, you Rick know, Cronin. they've done such, a, they've done such, you know, but I'm talking about the current guys. They've done such a good job that we never talk about them. Right. So uh, so it's Lamorello, it's Trotz's people. And then, of course, it's these players. And in the category of like there isn't it still hasn't been reported, I don't think, well enough or enough across 
the NHL scope. Not, I don't mean Arthur and Andrew and and other people, but but this this line with Martin and Tzitzis and and Clatterbuck, it continues to be remarkable, especially when you consider that Matt Martin wasn't even going to be re-signed, signed somewhere else, and then Lou brought him back. And they are out there in an overtime game, and they are controlling play. Like, this doesn't happen in the NHL. Nate Thompson playing his nuts off out there occasionally had some good shifts for the Flyers. Uh, what is going on with those three guys and, and the different variations as guys come in and out is a really remarkable thing, and it continues to be one of, if not the biggest difference makers for this team last year and this year. It's really – I sit there and I watch them, Joe, and I just kind of shake my head. Let's keep in mind, when, when Maddie Martin was in Toronto, the, the, the analysts over there – we're talking about how he never had the puck and his, the other team always had the puck and, it, and, and they couldn't even play him anymore. Like it feels like people forget about that. And he is a borderline dominant player, part of a dominant line. And it just, it just blows me away to see. And um, I think myself, like a lot of Islander fans, some of the moves Lou has made, your instant reaction is, hmm, that's, that's curious. I'm not sure if I would have done that. I'm not sure. All right, Derek Broussard on a one-year deal. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Andy Green, did they have to give up a second-round pick? Oh, did they give up too much for Pajot? Uh, six years <laughs> is a long time. And I mean, it's like how, much, how often is this going to have to happen uh, before we stop even second-guessing Lou? Because there's obviously <laughs> a type of player, both how they play the game, how they carry themselves, that he knows he wants in his organization and that will fit well. And then you look at some of like Tom Kunakal, even when he's had opportunities. So you see what's happening on the ice and you see Broussard playing big in the postseason after he was scratched earlier in series, you see Andy Green stepping in for Johnny Boychuk, who I feel for, because I would love to have Johnny Boychuk out there for him, but there's really nowhere to go right now with the, how well the defensive blue line has been playing, but he just, he's been finding a knack for a player that, when, when the acquisition is made, you raise your eyebrows a little bit, and no one on the charts and graphs crowd is going to say, well, that was a great move. But, man, does it work out when, when, in, in terms of the team element that he's looking for. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the spirit of, of the way Lou builds a team is I, he wants certain people on him who play a certain way with a certain character. I think Jacques Lemaire... Larry Robinson, to a lesser extent, but Jacques Lemaire is the the person who uh, forever has influenced Lou's approach, and and he also has his own style and his own leadership. Leo Komarov was like the head shaker in the moment, right? I don't think there was a person, including me, uh, who who (laughs) couldn't resist, you know, firing off a silly tweet about this, you know, four years and all that. And part of it is also for as lovable as he is and as respected and as solid a player as he is, Komarov also kind of looks the part of a guy who doesn't like look like the rest of the pieces. He's a he's a unique looking character and his style of play is different. And when he's maybe bogged down by a little bit of an injury, the kind of injury that wouldn't be reported or he would even say anything about when he's a little slower, it seems obvious to even to uh, somebody who doesn't know anything about anything like me. But that said, and I know he was, you know, he was replaced for game seven. 
I like he almost scored in overtime. He it was very Kamaravian in that he kind of bounced a wrist shot through traffic, but it almost went in. And I remember just thinking, man, that just would have been like so fitting if uh, Kamarov scored. So if you're Lou, there's a feeling, and I don't think this is something that he says, uh, but you, if if you're gonna go down, you're gonna go down with the people that you want who play a certain way, who give an honest effort. Broussard, he's always, and by the way, this has been the case just about everywhere he's been. He's somebody who will drive coaches a little bit batty, and then you sit him, and you hopefully that lesson takes, and then he gives you a great game. So, you know, the it's not like the Islanders or Trots aren't against having some players who you have to work with a little more, as opposed to guys you can just kind of wind up, give them the jersey, you know what you're going to get. That's what Broussard is. That's what Komarov is. Um, everybody else is pretty darn solid. With Green, you know, the defense on the Green thing being a second rounder, and right now, who cares, right? But um, it was that, I think there was a little bit of a tax there, right? If you're if you're Tommy Fitzgerald, it's a, it's a local team, and you know you're trading them to Lou. You have a feeling this is a team that has a chance to win something, to win at least a couple of rounds, and you don't want to be sitting there as a GM if you're Tommy Fitzgerald in New Jersey watching Andy Green, who's kind of a legendary uh, devil, then have this great success in August and September. Right? It just sounds weird to say. Um, so there's a little bit of a tax there. So I think that's why that was the second rounder. Uh, Pajo, I just Again, coming at it from a different perspective, I was like, sure. What's the cost? Sure. Get him. You know, he, he filled the hole. It's every team. Actually, I think it was Dan Sarsini had a great series of uh, tweets yesterday where he talked about, like, can we, you know, about this notion of nitpicking here and there or that there are four or five guys who are overpaid or this contract's going to come. Kevin Hayes, you know, the Flyers have that with Kevin Hayes. He's okay now. He's better than okay now. What's it going to look like in six years? Who knows? So it was kind of like there does come a point where it's like you do have to just worry about those things later and you look at buyouts and you work your way around it. But you build the team, you throw out 20 guys out there that you want, and uh, boy, they've uh, they've really done it, and it's been a treat to watch. A couple more questions for Chris Botta at Chris Botta NHL on Twitter. Uh, Matt Barzell, and um, you think about how he burst onto the scene, winning the Calder Trophy, and then Lou and Barry Trotz ask him to be a different type of player in some ways. And he's had moments where he's had to get benched or had to get a talking to. And he's taking quite a beating here in this series. He's got the black guy. He's got the bloody nose. As I joked uh, last night on Twitter, he seems to have everything but the, the beard. I'm not sure if he's doing that on purpose or he just can't grow one. But um, <laughs> what's, your, what's your impressions of what we've seen at him? Because you could hear it the way the NHL experts and announcers are talking about it. They, they view him as now in the talk of superstar status with the way he's played in these games. He, you know, when – Trotz was named coach. To me, that was the only like, hmm, okay, you know what you're going to get with Trotz. And by the way, and, and I say that, and I said that then, but he's now he's exceeded those expectations. So let's let's be clear about that. But when Trotz was named, I think it was fair for anybody, and I did think to themselves, wow, I wonder if 
Barzell can and Trotz can work. And I know Trotz will work with him. It's not like he hasn't worked with uh, uniquely talented, high-skilled guys before. But Barzell could present a little bit of a challenge, and it'll be interesting. Now, I think Tavares, and this is totally in hindsight, but I think Tavares leaving, it clearly lit a fire under Barzell. He, he hasn't been able to hide his uh, contempt, might be too strong a word, his disgust, disappointment uh, for what happened with Tavares and Tavares leaving. And I think that, you know, I, my two cents psychoanalysis on this is that Barzell's like, okay, well, now it's me. And I got this great coach here who's coming off the Stanley Cup. And I'm going to make this work with him. And, it, you know, again, I didn't know if it would in the beginning, but it has. So when we, you know, you talk about checking boxes and, and the, what has Trotz and this coaching staff done? Well, it seems like whatever goalie they put in does pretty well, uh, even guys who are no longer on the team. Uh, they've gotten something out of these guys. They get something out of these guys. And then there was the Barzell factor. And they've made him a better all-around player. And he has made himself a better all-around player. Whereas, like, he's doing the things he's supposed to. He's going to have his moments where he's going to give it up. I get it. You ha- you have to accept that with any uh, elite level player, and he is. Um, but he is he's doing all those things that are are expected of him by the staff, and yet he's still exciting. And it's it, it's fun to watch even some of the more grumpier or biased announcers, uh, whether it be across an NHL radio or an NBC, who it seems like they're kind of just discovering him now. Yet you and your readers and your listeners and, and the Lighthouse, like everybody knows how great this guy was or how skilled he was. And and it's funny just even just in the last few weeks to see like, boy, where did that, you know, it almost seems like they're saying, where did that come from? Well, actually he's been doing it for a few years. He won the, he's the kid who won the Calder, right? So um, <laughs> it's, uh, he's just, he's the, he's the, mo- I'm just going through my head right now. Is there a more thrilling player in the New York metropolitan area right now in any sport? Probably not. We'll see what happens if Kevin Durant uh, gets healthy. Um, but he's just, he, you know, again, is the team that this the boring thing. I think it went away quickly. People were called out on it. That went away. Uh, we get, we'll always have fun with it, right? But uh, he he's a guy who you want to buy a ticket to go see. He's a guy who, when they open up this a new arena, and I can't believe I actually said that, like this is actually happening. Uh, he's a guy who, you know, the Allens might not win every night, but you will take your children to see or, or your friends to see uh and he's just a, a joy he's, a, he's an all-around player and i'm glad that he's having this moment because let's face it as lou said right we you look at champions you look at team victories and barzell could have always been a, a, an individualist a solo artist uh but now he's a team player it's like it reminds me a little bit of kind of the pat lafontaine career but now he's worked himself into this team that pat never got to play for a team like this uh, as he got older, of course, um, and it's working for Barzell, and he is uh, he's a big part of it. And let's face it, for the Islanders to beat Tampa, as much as you know, we know the playoffs are about that other that third line guy coming out of nowhere to score. They're going to need the bars. They're going to need Barzell to uh, to uh, at least cancel out some of the firepower of the Lightning. And Chris, last question for me. You 
touched upon it just now in your answer. For someone who was walking around the Coliseum parking lot on August 1st, uh, 2000. 11 about the referendum. Uh, I think you can still find that on YouTube, uh, by the way. Um, what is it like watching, you know, these pictures of the construction work and the replicas? And I mean, cause you, you know, you said, you know, you're with the team back way back when in 1993, obviously moved up in the organization with, went through all of that and covered the team. Mm-hmm. Is it still a bit surreal to know that that's going to be happening? You know, about a year from now, we'll be a yeah. month or so away from dropping the puck in Elmont. Yeah, no, it's really surreal, and I'll go for one moment in, like, around 88, and I'll go to, like, present tense, and, and you know, I think this, I believe this has been mentioned or reported, you know, Bill Torrey in, in the late 80s, he had designs for a refurbished, or I should say a new coliseum in his office. So, like, this isn't even, like, I know people think this might have started with the lighthouse, or I guess maybe started with Milstein and Pigs at the Trow, and, and and anything else that came from around that whole Milstein, Spano, Gluckstern, however many owners that we can name, uh, go back there. But it actually goes back even longer than that, too. I know, so in my first year with the team, Tori uh, was working on something with the county and the begin- the germ of an idea of a new building in, in 1988. And then just to fast forward, you know, I... Even when NBC, you know, rolls in that shot, which I'm sure the Islanders have wisely asked them to do, like uh, here's the shot of where where the uh, arena is and, and here's how it looks now. Uh, I drive down the Cross Island, you know, fairly frequently. And that's when it, that's when it like really hits home. Like, no, that's actually, it's being built. This thing's actually getting done. So after years of, uh, of SNY shows and kind of, I don't, I don't even know what we call that, our televised podcasts and things that I wrote and said, and, and some of them, you know, incredibly wrong about how people will remind me how I once said the Islanders would get a billing before the Nets did. And I think the Nets are already going to need a new building. It's been there so long at Barclays. Um, it's really, it's quite something to see, you know, tickets have been sold, packages are being sold. And the timings worked out well. If anything, I feel like the Islanders might be a little ahead of the curve in terms of how good they are right now uh, before they move in. But the, this core of players and this coach will be there and the jam will be there. So uh, it's it's exciting. Uh, I'm just happy for everybody. It's in New York. It's in Long Island. It's in Nassau County. It's, uh, it's a, a great time. And uh, just happy for everybody at a time where it's really surreal. And for a lot of people, it's painful and people are going through a lot in this pandemic and job loss and things, everything that's uh, that's revolved around us lately. Uh, it is it's nice that the, the New York Islanders of all things, the New York Islanders are bringing joy uh, to this area. So a special time, and I really hope uh, everybody enjoys it and continues to enjoy it these next few weeks. Well, Chris, really appreciate the time and lending us your unique perspective, and uh, we'll see how long this magical ride does last, but uh, it will last in the memories of Islander fans, young and old, for quite some time. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe, and best to everybody at the uh, site and everyone everyone around, and I'll just country. Thanks, Joe.